I think that one of the biggest jobs, especially on a movie where it's the, the acting performances are the stars, that you become much more of a, a therapist, a psychiatrist to figure out how am I going to make all these people with their different acting styles and different personalities, how am I going to make them into a cohesive team that's working together? Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Andrew Heckler's new drama, Burden. The film tells the true story of an orphan raised within the Ku Klux Klan, who eventually becomes a local Grand Dragon. After his girlfriend persuades him to leave, the Klan seeks him out for vengeance, and a Black congregation led by a benevolent reverend take him and his family in. Burden is Mr. Heckler's directorial debut. Mr. Heckler recently spoke with director Rinaldo Marcus Green about filming Burden in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hi there. So I'm here with uh, writer-director Andrew Heckler uh, and his amazing film, Burden. Andrew, thank you so much for, for, for making this film. Uh, I was able to watch it and honestly, I was blown away by it, you know, filmmaker to filmmaker, uh, no BS. It's a really, a really incredible film and, and for it to be your first film um, is really special. So I was I'm just so happy to be moderating this. I want you to have as much time on the floor as possible. I know nobody's out there uh, able to ask questions. So I'll try to ask as many as I can and we can cover a lot of ground. Um, I'll start with, you know, obviously how, how, you, how you came to make this film. I, I believe you started the research in what, 1998 or 1999. So it's been a long time coming. And then the film premiered at Sundance in 2018. So if you could just walk us through, you know, what made you want to tell the film and, uh, and, and, and how, did you, how did you end up actually, you know, getting the, getting the financing to make the movie? Well, yeah, thanks. First, I want to thank the W, uh, sorry, the DGA for having us. And, uh, you know, I want to thank you personally. We were at Sundance together and this means a lot to me for you to moderate this with me and uh, it'll be fun. Um, yeah, it, you know, sometimes, you know, people say don't never give up and, you know, uh, it can happen. And, and, and I found this story in a blurb in a newspaper, literally a blurb in a newspaper, uh, a South Carolina newspaper in 1997 when it was happening. And I was lucky enough to have been befriended Billy Bob Thornton at the time. And Billy used to always say, problem with Hollywood movies is guys sit in their offices in Burbank, look out the window and imagine what life can be like. He goes, you got to get out of that office. You got to go down there. You got to see what's going on. So that was ringing in my ear. And I picked up the phone and I called the real guy, the Reverend David Kennedy. And I said, hey, you know, uh, I'd like to come down and check you guys out and, and, you know, research the story. And he goes, well, it's a free country. Why don't you come on down? So I drove down there. And I spent the first time about two weeks, mostly with the church, driving the town, hanging out, and really getting to know the, the place where this took place. And it was pretty raw. I mean, it just had happened. Um, subsequently, you know, I, I went down a bunch more times, uh, even, you know, somewhat infiltrating the Klan uh, and getting to know those guys so I could have both sides of the truth, both sides of the story, and not have it just be, you know, from a northerner preachy perspective or, or from, from a, a one side of the other preachy perspective. I wanted to know, you know, and get under their skin and figure out what's going on underneath the hood. You know, my whole, my whole MO uh, as a filmmaker, but especially in this one, you know, it taught me a lot. It was, you know, you take the hood off the Klansmen and 
there's a person under there. Who is that person and how could they get here? So, um, you know, I really got in there and, and a lot of the stuff that's in the movie, the grays, it wasn't just a black and white movie. The grays come from spending the time, spending the time with the people, getting to know them. What do they do for a living? What do they do every day? Who are they? Why do they think? In fact, it was, uh, it's a great man, uh, Clarence Simpson, uh, now he's Reverend Clarence Simpson, who was down there, who, who was played by Usher in the movie, um, loosely based on Usher. Uh, loosely based on Clarence, he he was the one who said to me, I feel sorry for them boys. And he was talking about the Klan. Mm -hmm. And I said, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, poor, black, male, Southern, supposed to be. Poor, Southern, male, white, ain't supposed to be. He goes, they're, you know, I feel sorry for them. They're treated more poorly than we are, which was eye-opening. Now, I never would have thought that or, or conceived of that idea unless I had spent time down there and, and put in the time and effort. And so the movie was actually coming together very quickly. <laughs> I, I wrote a, a treatment, uh, an actor, a partner of mine, Aaron Eckhart, great guy, great actor. Um, he jumped into it, wanted to play Mike Burden. This is in 1999, 2000. We attached a, a young director who was amazing named Catherine Hardwick. And off we went to Paramount Studios where they said, this is too much talent to, to, to not do this movie. And uh, needless to say, it fell apart. We reassembled the pieces. Uh, everybody jumped away from the movie. <laughs> and a friend of mine, a young uh, producer, who is an amazing, amazing person, uh, we'll get into her more later, Robbie Brenner was uh, going to produce another movie of mine uh, that I had written. And she, we were talking. She said, well, whatever happened to Burden? I said, oh, she fell apart. It's free. You know, she's like, no one's on the movie. I'm like, no one. Uh, I'm going to direct it maybe. I don't know. And she said, well, if no one's on it, I want to come on. And that was around 2004, 2005. We put the pieces together all again. And a young acting, young up and coming actor named Channing Tatum uh, was going to play Mike Burden. Um, uh, we had uh, Woody Harrelson was playing Tom Griffin. We had Michelle Monaghan playing Judy. And we had uh, a little known actor named Forrest Whitaker attach himself in 2006 to play the Reverend Kennedy. Uh, he was on his way to win an Academy Award that year. And, and so off we went. Now that movie fell apart again. And I can tell you that the journey from that moment when it fell apart again to 2016, I think we attached the entire cast of the Avengers as Mike Burden at some point. And I'm not exaggerating. We had Chris Evans twice. We had Chris uh, uh, Hemsworth. We had Jeremy Renner. Um, uh, Mark dallied around it a little bit. You know, we, we had everybody. But what I had was Robbie Brenner. I had a fierce independent producer who just wouldn't let this movie go. And, you know, she had made Dallas Buyers Club, another movie that was written in 1999, I think. Uh, it took her a good 12 years to make that movie. And when she got nominated for an Academy Award, the first thing that happened was my phone rang. I said, what's up? She goes, you're next. Let's make Burden. 
And, uh, and it was, she, she raised the money. I mean, this is independent filmmaking. This is labor of love 101, you know, but it, it's hard because no one seems to be studying anymore. And I mean that, like, there's very few people like her out there in the world. Robbie rolled up her sleeve, started raising money. But I mean, to the point where every morning on set, she's in the trailer still raising money. She, she jumped into this thing without having all the money. Like we greenlit the movie, we were shooting and she was still raising money every day. So I owe it, you know, I, I pretty much, I, I, as, a, as a director, as a writer, director, as an artist, man, if you can find your Robbie Brenner, you hold on to her and you don't let her go because, you know, that's worth your weight in gold. So that, that's how the movie eventually got made and took so long is because I just had a champion who never, you know, who never gave up. Wow. Well, look, look we're, we're, we're happy that you stuck with it as long as you did. And the story that you have to make it, I know, is part of the story in sort of releasing the movie. So we'll get to that. But I, but I want to talk to the cast uh, that you ended up with, which is phenomenal. And knowing all those people and having seen your movie, you know, I think you made the right choice in, in waiting. And, right. um, and sometimes that happens, as I'm sure. And I'd love to you, you to talk about, you know, how you, how you came to, to cast the film, um, why these folks and, 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 and how it was working with such, you know, obviously Forrest now as an Academy Award winner, Usher, Garrett, Andrea, you know, so you, you've got, you know, Tom, you have so many folks that are so talented in this movie. Um, the performance is so rich. So I'd love to you talk, talk a little bit about the casting, uh, you know, how you, how you came up with this ensemble. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes they say what, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And um, when, you know, again, you know, I go back to Robbie Brenner. She, she greenlit the movie. She called Brad Slater and said, you know, we're going to do the movie is Forrest available? Does he still want to do it? And Forrest did. You know, I mean, like, I think when Forrest signed on in 2006, he didn't think he'd have to wait 10 years to play the role. Um, but he was, you know, a huge champion and, and stayed with the movie. And he became the anchor. And he had a window of availability. I think it was, a, you know, I think he had a, like a month available between shooting the Steve McQueen movie, I think it was Widows, and, and playing Desmond Tutu. So like, you know, Forrest is a man who works quite a bit. And, and so Robbie just said, okay, that's it. That's, we're shooting. We're shooting October to, you know, Thanksgiving. Now we have our shoot dates. We're greenlit the movie and we're going. When I was working with Channing, believe it or not, in 2006, our idea, and I was a very different person back then, <laughs> had one kid, um, was to, uh, to get a trailer near where he had family in Arkansas, up in the hills of Arkansas, and spent a month there. And he said, when I come out of that trailer, I will be Mike Burton. And I was like, that's, yeah, man, that's what we need. So that was my, that was my vision. That was my method. That's what I was going to do. Needless to say that uh, we had an actor attached to the movie, uh, a young actor to play Mike Burton, who was amazing. And we couldn't get an American, we couldn't get an actor to play Tom Griffin. It was 2016. We were leading up to the presidential election. Nobody wanted to play Klansman. And I mean, nobody. 
to the point where I actually got personal emails and I started emailing actors of note, big actors who were like, I don't know who you are. I appreciate your, your passion, but please leave me the fuck. I'm not playing that guy. I don't want it. Like, you know, I hounded Jeff Bridges for a long time. You just, you know, and, and um, Ed Harris, countless people. So finally, we're getting near, you know, the date of the movie we're supposed to shoot. And I finally get, uh, we get it to Tom Wilkinson. It was my idea. I thought, you know, I, I definitely don't want to cast the, a bad guy as the bad guy. Mm -hmm. I want to make, you know, the audience work for it. I want to make the story work for it. I want him to be a good guy. Yeah. And Tom is, you know, Tom seems like a good guy. And in fact, there were, there were times when, you know, thankfully, you know, when we did the movie, I kept reminding them every day, all the Klansmen, every day, you are the high school heroes. You are the good guys. You are the prom king and queen. I do not want to see anybody play a bad guy here. I want to understand you guys. So I don't want, you know, and for lack of a better actor, because there's no one who plays bad, like, you know, James Woods can play bad, you know, and he comes on the screen, you're like, oh, I can't wait to see him be the bad guy. I didn't want that. Uh, so when Tom signed on, we finally had the last piece of the puzzle. So we had Forrest against Tom and, and, you know, my wife even said, are you happy? I said, I'm measured. And sure enough, we called the lead actor and he had taken another movie. He was like, I just didn't think you guys would have it together. <laughs> Long and the short, we had Tom, we had Forrest. I was dabbling with a young un unknown entertainer named Usher to play Clarence. Uh, and, and we had no Mike and Judy. So Andrea, uh, Andrea uh, knew her agent and also her manager and they sent me a bunch of materials and I watched them and I was like, oh my God. I mean, she's out, out of hand. And, and she is, she's, I mean, she's just, you know, she gets into a character and, and there's no trace of her. Mm. Um, the woman I met when, I, when we cast, you know, her by Zoom and, and it was quick, I picked her up at the airport and I took her right to Judy Burden, the real one. So we spent two days getting to know each other and Judy Burden. In the middle of me in prep, I drove, you know, I drove and did that. Um, but that woman that I introduced to Judy Burden and left mm. became Judy. When she was on the set, it, she became that person that I left her with. Um, it was, it was uncanny. Uh, and then it's a long story and I won't bore you guys for the whole thing, but no one would play, you couldn't get anybody to play Mike. And we'd already been down the road with Garrett and there's, you know, they'd already passed on the movie for him. And Robbie had knew him and Robbie knew friends of his and Robbie knew everything else. And so again, we submitted it again. She went around the world and got to Garrett and, and everybody got to Garrett and, and, as the story goes, they're like, look, you just played a movie that has like racial clan overtones, um, which was Mudbound. You can't do it again. And he goes, what am I never going to play a soldier again? He goes, let me read the script. So he read it and he liked it. We are now, and I'm not kidding. Robbie and I aren't sleeping. We're a month away from day one shooting. We don't have Mike Burden. Now, if you remember, my idea was to spend a month in a, 
you know, in a trailer in Arkansas, I was prepping for this movie. Now I don't even have the character and we're a month away from, you know, roll camera. So Garrett reads the script. He likes it. He's really interested, needs to talk to me, but he's going on vacation to Italy on a road, on a motorcycle trip where he'll be unavailable. So they're like, you have to get on the phone with him. He's heading to the airport. Long story short is I sat at the airport because I was going back to Atlanta to, to prep. I sat at the airport and missed one, two, three, four, five planes. I'm in the lounge waiting for this guy who's heading to the airport himself. And I finally get a text saying, sorry, ran late, jumped on the plane. We're taking off. Wow. So I get on my plane and I wrote him. This is for all you writer directors out there. I just started writing and I wrote him a note from my heart about him, about the movie, about the role, about the importance of it. And it was long. I was just, <clears throat> it was Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire kind of thing. <laughs> and I pressed send so that I couldn't get it back. So I couldn't have cold feet and not send it. A couple of days later, I mean, this is how desperate we were. I'm in Atlanta. I'm in my office. I'm in, I, I didn't want a, an assistant. So I got an intern from the local college. I was interviewing different interns from the colleges so I could give them a chance. And I'm sitting there with this girl and all of a sudden someone, the, the phone rings in the middle of this interview and I pick it up and I go, hello. And I hear, hey, this is Garrett. And I look at her, I go, I gotta go. <laughs> I went to the janitor closet because there was nowhere else to go. And this guy goes, hey, sorry, I'm sitting under an olive tree in Tuscany overlooking the Italian countryside, having a glass of Chianti and I finally have a chance to call you. And I said, I'm having a very different experience. I'm in a janitor's closet. I'm three and a half weeks away from shooting and I don't have my lead actor. No one's sleeping. Uh, anyway, long and the short is he signed on. And then again, he came and I took him and him and I went and met Mike Burden and spent a long time with Mike Burden. And I don't know what it is about certain actors. And I told, you know, that, but he... Mike Burden is a great guy now. I mean, I, I couldn't be prouder of the person he has become. Um, is he perfect? No. But he is a you know, completely changed man. And, and I really respect him. And he's got an unbelievable relationship with his wife. But I took Garrett to meet them. And what happens is what we think we know, and this is another thing, what we think we know about People, we have no clue. We can surmise all we want. And I mean this. But I went down there and when Garrett and Mike went for a long walk so that Mike could share stuff, Mike's wife, who's one of the sweetest people I've ever met, told me her life story. And there's a level of abuse. There's a level of like, I mean, just abject neglect, abuse, physical, mental. I mean, it's torture. And she told me this as though she was reading a fairy tale. And then my ex-husband came and he beat the hell out of my, me in front of my two-year-old baby. And then I had to take the baby. And I mean, it was unreal. And so that was brutal. And it was brutal for Garrett. And, and Garrett was sort of like, I don't, I don't even know if I can do this. And I said, throw it away. You're not playing Mike Bird. You're playing the character on the page as you understand him. But I said, trust me, you've now breathed him in and that'll pay dividends. And again, 
Garrett was able to do that. And he like, and you know, I was very, I mean, I was very lucky. Um, but like Andrea, Andrea, you know, Garrett breathed in Mike Burden and sort of just became him. The yeah. walk and just the, oh, yeah. the sort of ticky self-hatred that Mike does. Um, that he doesn't do anymore, actually, Mike, the real one. Uh, but Garrett nailed this in a way that that is uncanny. And if you ever, you know, for all the people who said, like, you know, I, I don't believe what he did or whatever, you just have to go down there. You have to go down to small town America and, and see these guys. There were certain people, like, I'll never forget when, I was very, very lucky and, and Jamie Foxx got to screen the movie mm. and he's from Texas and he's from this. Mm. And he said, the sound of the truck that you had and Garrett's performance, he goes, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. He goes, I heard the truck and I got scared. Mm. He goes, that's the truck. Mm. And he goes, and Garrett is the guys that were, you know, chasing us. So I, I couldn't have been luckier. Um, I mean, and I mean lucky. They came... It was exactly what I wanted. They came with everything and I pushed them even further. Uh, I can say, and we were talking about it before, you know, I think that one of the biggest jobs, especially on a movie where it's the, the acting performances are the stars, mm. the story and the performances are the stars, that you become much more of a, a therapist, a psychiatrist to figure out how am I going to make all these people with their different acting styles and different personalities? How am I going to make them into a cohesive team that's working together? You know, and um, because they all were very, very different. Yeah. Forrest is very introspective. Mm. Um, he's, you know, he, he sort of carries the weight of his character in his physical, in all, all through him. In fact, we had dinner the night he rapped. And when he showed up, you know, the Reverend is a very heavy, tired man, you know, chasing everybody. And Forrest showed up as like Forrest and he was young again and he was Forrest Whitaker and he was cool. And I was like, holy shit, like he, they said, you know, rap and he was him. Um, Tom is a very British actor, you know, that whole John Gilgus story, just try acting son, that's Tom. You know, and, and he can act just from one second to the next. You roll camera and he's ready. We had a roving second camera the whole, the whole shoot. I loved messing with Tom because he was, uh, I loved Tom. I mean, we had such a good time. But anything we could try with Tom Wilkinson, I just figured, what the fuck, let's just try it. Um, like we gave him Cheetos to eat at one scene. And you should have seen Tom Wilkinson eating Cheetos. He's like, I don't even know what these are. <laughs> it's like, and he takes one and examines it. He's like, it's like a crisp, right? I'm like, yeah, you know, he, he actually sort of liked them. I don't think he's ever eaten one again. But, uh, but Tom is very different. You know, Tom is a very different actor. Uh, Andrea just becomes the character. And Garrett, because it was such a heavy role for him. It was so brutal. I mean, it really, the role really ripped him apart. Um, in many, many ways, in order to release his stress, Garrett was like, I mean, he, he, you would think that he would just spend hours depressed. He just would prank everybody all day long, never stopped. 
Mm. I mean, and never stopped. And it was hilarious. And, and I appreciated that he needed to do that to release all of it. But we made it work, you know, and, uh, and we made it work really well. It, it was a, we had to shoot because in low budget films, you take what you can get. So we had, you know, Garrett was first to show up every day, last to leave. He, he was a gift. Mm. You know, he was a gift not only because he's talented, I mean, he's amazing. His attitude, his workmanship, I mean, the guy was just anything I needed. Um, but we had all the African-Americans for two weeks. Crystal Fox, also a legend. I mean, she's just, you know, and, and Dexter Darden. I mean, we just had a great crew. Um, and then we had a crossover week where everybody was there. And then we were left with the clan. And the funny thing was, is like the first two weeks, I mean, literally it was like, it was joking and fun and everybody's happy and singing and dancing and all sorts of stuff. Crossover week got a little weird because Tom was like, you know, it's like you guys are a family. I don't even get it. <laughs> and then the last two weeks were fun also, but it was really biting nasty, sarcastic sense of humor. The, the guys were just picking each other, you know, all the clans were just, you know, just picking on each other. And I was like, wow, these guys are actually like, we're sort of living the thing. Uh, and it was really cool, but I'll tell you one scary moment then I'll, we'll move on. But um, I think that the best thing that prepared me to deal with actors, you know, I mean, we had an Academy Award winner and he'd also been nominated for another. We had a guy who's been nominated for two Academy Awards and like a very venerable, respected actor. You know, we had Garrett, you know, and we have Andrea who are, you know, artists, real artists. Crystal Fox, I can't say enough about her as a human being. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have Usher who's, you know, Usher has been world famous since he was 14. So we had a lot of personalities um, on the set. And the thing that really prepared me for all of it, from my perspective, because when I started this project, I was single and I was young. Uh, you know, I had a lot of brown, you know, dark brown flowing hair. And now I've got gray hair. And when I shot the movie, I had three kids and a wife and, you know, yeah. lived in L.A. in a very different space than I was in New York. And I thought to myself. I got kids, you know, like what I can't be scared of like what am I scared of like I have kids kids that whole like parenting being a father like dealing with your children really prepared me for any uh, any emergency or anything that would come up with the actors but also it gave me a, a high level of strength to sort of approach this and not be afraid of them mm. you know wow. I just felt like I've got other things going on here so what are you gonna what what can you really do to me? Yeah. Well, the movie feels so lived in and so nuanced and so real. And you can tell the amount of time that you put into it and the performances really speak to that. I wanna we have some I have so many questions I want to ask. Maybe we should do a quick rapid fire round of just oh. for the young filmmakers out there. What what did what did you shoot on? Uh, how many what did you shoot on? So we shot, you know, uh, on a red cam. We used old lenses though. Okay. Use okay. uh, regular lenses. Um, you know, I, I really felt it was important. I grew up in film. I didn't want to shoot a, a soap opera. Yeah. 
So I wanted to make it, it was almost like what I, what I like to call beautiful realism. It looked, you know, I wanted to feel like you were there, like you weren't watching actors in a movie. Absolutely. And so that required like, and what's funny is I got called out a lot by critics because they're like, he doesn't know what to do with the camera every single moment. And my DP would, you know, Jeremy loved it, but every once in a while I'd be like, wait a minute. I'd be like, we, we put a lot of mistakes in, not a mistakes. We put camera moves in the movie. Julie Monroe, my editor was loving this. I'm like, see that, that we like just fade away for no reason. She's like, and then we come back. She's like, yeah. I said, keep that. She's like, okay, perfect. And we just, I just wanted to feel like subliminally, if we left all those mistakes in that the audience would be like, we're there. Like no director in his right mind would have the camera blocked for this long. Mm. Um, but it was a quick shoot. We how many days? We had twenty-seven days. Twenty-seven days. And what was the what was the total budget of the film? A little over five million. I see. That's so, uh, and all did you shoot all on location. All on location, and and uh, interestingly enough, I'm not a big locations fan. Uh, in terms of locations. And what I mean by that is I didn't really understand the job. And this is no offense to any locations people, but they would show me places that movies had shot in all the time. Um, I finally befriended the local sheriff because the waitress who used to wait us, uh, on us at the diner. And I, and I just asked him, I'm like, okay, let me describe this guy, Mike Burton. Where would he live? And they mm -hmm. took me there. Where would a reverend like this guy live? And they took me to a reverend's house. That's the house in the movie. You know, plantation concrete. I, I, we were driving with location scouts, and I, I went stop. I stopped the van. I ran out. I was, I knocked on the door. All of a sudden, this dog started going bananas, and I'm like, oh shoot, I may be in trouble here. This woman opened the door, looked at me. She was fierce, and she goes, "What y'all want?" And this, that's the place in the movie, by the way. So it's that's what it looks like. And I said. Well, we're looking for a place for a movie to shoot a movie that's a little roughed up, a little lived in. She goes, y'all looking for a show? Because this here is a show. And I said, well, I wouldn't say that. She goes, well, I would. She goes, but, you know, if you want to rent it, you got to talk to Pappy. And, and this guy, you know, I talked to this guy who was shirtless and I thought he was going to shoot me. But he, they ended up being the most lovely people and they couldn't have been better. She just, you know, her husband, who was this great guy. I actually went on weekends with them to like local events. Like right. they, you know, he worked at the municipal waterworks. And the one thing he said is you can do anything you want here. I don't want to be, you know, I just don't want to be involved. Mm -hmm. So of course we're shooting that day. And I said, can you do me a favor? Just, just sit over. I don't I want you out of the way. Sit over there. And I sat him next to Tom and we shot and he's in the movie. That's great. That's great. We're, we have time for, I would love to just talk about where the movie is, how we can find it. Um, obviously, I, I wish I could ask you a thousand more questions, but, you know, tell us, tell us, you know, it, it premiered, it won, it won a jury prize, uh, you know, audience award at, at Sundance in 2018. It's now 2021. How can we find the film? What do you want most, uh, most out of its release? And uh, yeah, what's right. next? So, uh, you know, in the, you can find it on any streaming platform, Apple, Amazon, everything. It just was released on Showtime this weekend. So find it there. I mean, for me, basically, you know, this is a movie that I think everybody needs to watch. It's not my story. It's a true story about what happens when you douse out hate with love. You know, unwavering faith, unwavering love, stay with it, and the hate dies away. 
you know, if hate's a flame, love, love and everything else is, you know, a warm, black, warm, wet blanket that just puts it out. And, and these are real people. And so whenever I've been criticized for telling this story in this way, I always say the same thing. I didn't write it. This happened. You know, this guy was a hardcore Klansman. This guy is a Black Baptist minister. This woman loved him. You know, it all, you know, it all just happened. And now he's not a Klansman. That's the bottom line. You know, he's not a Klansman anymore. So how many times, you know, people ask me this question. How many times do we have to forgive? No one's saying you have to forgive one time. Don't. Then we're still here. Try something different. Maybe we get to a different place. And right now, you know, all we've been doing is yelling at each other for the last couple of years. Time to stop and go, okay, how do we put ourselves in their shoes? How can they maybe put themselves in our shoes? How can we talk and come together? And I want to burden always to be that kind of a conversation starter. Hey, I've had really intense, angry conversations about burden, but they lead somewhere positive. So that, you know, that, that's my, my message. It's what I hate to say, because I've used this quote quite a bit, and it's been used a ton in the last couple of weeks, but it's MLK. You know, it really is. You can never turn an enemy into a friend through hate. You can only turn an enemy into a friend through love. You know, that's the summary of it. And that's what the movie's about. Yeah, well, look, your film is more timely, you know, as timely as I should say um, now than it than it was when you made it. And um, I hope everyone gets a chance to see the film. I hope, uh, you know, they're able to share it. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing next and uh, what's what's next for you? Um, yeah, I've got uh, um, we were all ready to, to start uh, Greenlight, an, uh, a movie about the opioid crisis set in the deep, deep, deep West Virginia coal mine area. Um, to, you know, showing the real story and the real victims of the story and, and then mushrooming out to the bigger picture. Uh, it's a crazy movie, that, but again, it's very much real. And then um, I'm actually working on a project. It's the first project that NASCAR has pr uh, approved in, uh, since Talladega Nights. Wow. Um, and it's a family drama. Basically, it's somewhat loosely based on Henry IV set in the world of NASCAR. That's great. Well, we're excited to keep following your path. So grateful for you, know, you allowing me to moderate this and hear, hear a little bit about your story. I know it took so many years to make and so many years to come out, but I'm so glad it's finally here. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people will be hitting you up soon for, uh, for you to direct their next movie. So we'll be looking out for you. Appreciate it, man. It was great to see you. And thank you so much. Uh, thank you, DGA. And thank you personally. Likewise. Congratulations again. Appreciate it. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from Ramin Barani, Eliza Hitman, and Sam Levinson. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America, Music is by Dan Wally. 